Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. This morning we want to continue in our verse-by-verse study of Luke's gospel. And we're in chapter 20, so if you have your Bible, let's open them now to Luke chapter 20 and verses 41 through 44 is our text this morning. The title of the message, Jesus Interrogates His Enemies. Now, remember this action takes place the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. Uh, Many theologians believe that this is Wednesday. So he's less than 48 hours away from his death and he has decided to use the last hours of his life doing what he had been doing for over three years, which was teaching the common people. We believe that he was in the temple grounds there. Throngs of people were all around him. Remember that uh, probably two million people had come into Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the Passover and Jesus would not miss that great opportunity. These people had welcomed him as a king just a few days before as he rode the foal of a donkey through the eastern gate of Jerusalem. But intermingled in the crowd of supporters were his enemies, people like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. And they were like hounds circling their prey. Uh, They kept one after the other, laying verbal traps for Jesus, but each time he extricated himself. And his enemies ultimately, according to verse 40, were stunned into silence. That is, they no longer had the courage to ask him anything. And in verse 41, Jesus turns the tables. The hunted becomes the hunter and the prey becomes the predator. The interrogated becomes the interrogator. So Jesus had some questions of his own for his enemies. We read about that beginning in verse 41 of chapter 20. Then he said to them, how is it that they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. On your outline today, the first point is a question of authorship. Now, Jesus calls to the witness stand, as it were, one of the most revered names in Jewish history. That is King David. In verse 42 Jesus quoting David from Psalm 110 says, for David himself says in the book of Psalms. Now the two other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, both um, give us an account of this conversation. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 43, Matthew gives us a little more detail in that Jesus asked the Pharisees directly, whose son is the anointed one. Whose son is the Christ, the Messiah? And they replied, David's. And so with David brought into the picture, Jesus goes ahead and he speaks to the authorship. Now the higher critics who try to disparage anything of the supernatural in the scriptures have tried to replace the traditional authors of the various books of the Bible. And many of them have claimed that David did not write the 110th Psalm. Where here, here we have the Lord Jesus Christ verifying that, in fact, David did write the 110th Psalm. Uh, but it's not just that the veracity of the Scriptures 
are under attack from the outside world, those who would not claim to be Christians. Many of those claiming to be Christians, some of them even in the evangelical church. Some years ago, there was a very famous evangelical pastor who made the claim that we Christians need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Likely he thought because that people don't identify with things that happened that long ago. But here we have Jesus affirming David's authorship. We also find Jesus here endorsing the use of the Old Testament in evangelism. Because that's exactly what Jesus is doing. That's the point of his going to the temple every day, even though his crucifixion is just hours away. Mark tells us in his account of this encounter that Jesus did so because he knew there were some in that crowd of his enemies who were not far from the kingdom. There were some amidst those Sadducees and scribes and even some in the Sanhedrin that would ultimately come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus endorsing the Old Testament in using evangelism, he's affirming the divine inspiration of, of Scripture. Again, in Matthew's Gospel, it says that David said, in the Spirit. That is, he's verifying that even though God used very human people to write down the Scriptures, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, he's affirming the inerrancy of Scripture because if God wrote the Scripture, as Jesus claimed he did, and God is perfect, then it stands to reason that the Scripture is also perfect and inerrant, which it claims to be. But friends, it's not enough to affirm the divine authorship of Scripture. Scripture must be interpreted and its meaning understood correctly. Remember that just as we saw last week, Jesus had rebuked the Sadducees at two points. He says, you do not understand, number one, the scriptures, that is, you wrongly interpret the scriptures, and then because you wrongly interpret the scriptures, secondly, you must understand the power of God. So they did not understand the scriptures as it related primarily to the coming Messiah. They were looking, most of them, for a military leader. They were chafing, remember, under the Roman occupation, and they wanted someone to come in, and they prayed for someone to come in to rally the people and overthrow the occupying Roman forces. But the Messiah they were looking for was very much human. They were not looking for God in the flesh, and so they misunderstood the Scriptures. And so it now becomes a question of interpretation. Jesus has firmly established that God is the one who ultimately gave us the Scriptures. This is His Word and therefore perfect. And to the degree that we interpret it correctly, we understand who God is and what His plan is. And so now it's a question of interpretation. Look at verse 41. Then He said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? And so when you have a plural pronoun like they, you need to understand what its antecedent is. So the antecedent of the pronoun they we take from Matthew was the Pharisees. Jesus asked the Pharisees the question, whose son is the Messiah? And they said, David's son. And so Jesus says to the crowd then, how do they, the Pharisees say that the Messiah is David's son? Now he's going to refer to Psalm 110. Look at verse 42. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, why is David so important to the understanding of who the Messiah is? It's because of what we call 
the Davidic covenant. And that is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. And so if you have uh, your scripture again, let's, let's turn there quickly. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. Actually, the covenant begins in verse 8, but the pertinent part for today begins in verse 12. This is God speaking to David. He's making promises to King David before he died. God says to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. You will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And so here we have really two prophecies. The first part of the prophecy, he's saying, David, there's going to come after you one of your descendants who's going to build a house for me. And of course, that was fulfilled through Solomon. And he built what we know as Solomon's temple. And of course, David's descendants, many of them sinned and God um, punished them, he says, with this rod. But then there's a second portion of this prophecy that has to do with the future. And we believe it has to do with the Messiah. And we'll see that in verse 16. Look at it. He says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So this is the prophet Nathan speaking on behalf of God, these prophecies to David. And so there are those who doubt the veracity of scripture that say, aha, this proves that the Bible is not true. Nathan predicted that David's descendants would rule on the throne of Israel forever. But we know that it was not long after David's death, his son Solomon took the throne and when Solomon died, the kingdom was divided in 922 BC. Solomon had a wicked son who followed him, a young man by the name of Rehoboam. And so the kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, of course, was taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 BC. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 14. And then the southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer, but in 586, ultimately, what we know as the Babylonian captivity which by the way, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a series on the book of Daniel that takes place during that period. And so since that time, there has not really existed the kingdom of Israel. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, they were not an independent autonomous kingdom. As I said before, Rome had occupied them. And so does that mean that the prophecies made to David were not true? Well, let's look back what he said. He says, there's going to be an eternal king on the throne. Well, that tells us right away it, it couldn't be just a human being. Because we know that uh, like kingdoms and like dynasties, human beings also have a dash in between two numbers. We are born and we die and in between our life is, is that dash. Not even the greatest king, not even King David had an eternal kingdom, but God promises to David that ultimately one of his descendants is going to reign forever. And so the correct interpretation of Psalm 110 and the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel is that these are promises concerning the coming Messiah, specifically that the Messiah would have to be a descendant of King David. 
And so that begs the question, was Jesus a rightful descendant of David? Well, the New Testament answers that question with an affirmative. In fact, it answers it twice in the affirmative, both in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. Both of those Gospel writers take large sections of their Gospels to prove the genealogical record of Jesus does indeed go through King David. In fact, apparently that truth really wasn't in question at the time of Jesus. We see that even Jesus' greatest enemies never question, one, the veracity of his miracles. No one ever questioned whether Lazarus really came forth from the grave or the blind really were given their sights. Those were verified by multiple witnesses. So you never have the Pharisees and scribes questioning the miracles. They questioned the authority with which Jesus performed the miracles. And secondly, they never questioned the authenticity of his claim to be a descendant of David. All they had to do was walk across the street to the temple. And in the temple, you had very specific genealogical records of every family. But by the way, in 70 AD, when Titus Vespasian burned the temple for the Romans, those genealogical records were burned up and lost forever. No one claiming to be the true Messiah after Jesus could have proven it, that he was a descendant of, of David. Now, I said earlier that this is a question of interpretation. Specifically, what are we interpreting? We're interpreting Psalm 110, which Jesus is quoting here. So let's turn there now, the 110th Psalm. By the way, the 110th Psalm is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. In many places, like the book of Hebrews, in the book of Acts, we find the writers quoting Psalm 110. And every time they do, they are using it to prove the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read the 110th Psalm now in its entirety, all seven verses. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over the broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so we, we see a number of things here. Jesus only quotes the, the first verse or so in proving that he is God in the flesh. And that's this. It says, the Lord said to my Lord. In the Hebrew, Yahweh said to Adonai. And you may know that those two words, Yahweh and Adonai, are often used interchangeably as names or titles of God. Yahweh is the formal name for God in which Jewish people would not speak. It's so reverenced to them. Adonai means my Lord or my master. And so read it that way. God said to my master. And so now you have three people present in this psalm. You have the writer, David. He was referring to God speaking to David's master. And so it's a mathematical problem. Who are these three? Well, two of them are two members of the Trinity. God the Father, Yahweh, and Adonai. God the Son. This is obviously a messianic psalm. Now David was the king of Israel, as I said, the most revered man in history other than Moses. 
And he is referring to someone who would come after him, the Messiah, and yet he calls him Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Now that would never happen in the ancient Middle East. A father would never call his son, his master or his Lord. So if the Messiah was just a man, as the Sadducees and Pharisees predicted, then this verse doesn't work as a messianic song. David clearly calls the Messiah that is to come his master and Lord. So clearly Jesus is teaching that the Messiah is more than a man, he is God. And because Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah, Jesus is claiming that he is more than a man, he is God in the flesh. And therefore, the implication of that is that he's calling everyone in the sound of his voice to bow to his sovereignty. And that's why I say this is an evangelistic encounter. He is one more time, even through the hard heartedness of his enemies, giving them the opportunity to repent and to submit to his authority. Not only that, he is declaring through the 110th Psalm that one day these enemies of his, if they do not repent, are going to be placed under his feet. Again, what it says in the 110th Psalm, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In the ancient world, when kings were defeated, they were paraded before those who had defeated them and they were forced to bow down in the dust and literally the victorious king would place his heel on the neck of the defeated foe in public so that everyone could see that this king had been ultimately and totally vanquished. And so Jesus here is saying that one day all of his enemies are going to be placed under his feet, all of those who wanted to see him done away with. It harkens back to Genesis chapter 3, who our ultimate enemy, of course, is Satan, and these enemies of Jesus are doing, of course, the bidding of Satan. This first preaching of the gospel in Genesis 3, God, even while he's pronouncing a curse on humanity, says there's coming a day when the seed of woman will crush the head of the ultimate enemy, Satan. His heel will be upon his neck. And so having interpreted the 110th Psalm correctly, now in his interrogation, the question becomes authentication. Really, what we have before us is the ultimate question of authenticity when it comes to who is to be considered a brother or sister in Christ. And so let me say something very clearly. Friends, theology matters. And for the last eight weeks, I've been teaching an online class called Systematic Theology, and several hundred of you have been a part of that. I encourage all of you to go back, not because it's me. I have some of the brightest minds in the country on with me every week to discuss these deep theological principles. But you need to understand theology. Theology is the study of God. And because God is our creator, our sustainer, and our savior, we need to know as much about him as we possibly can because when we pray to God, when we worship God, when we think about God, we never want to do that in any way that's less than truthful about him. So all the things that we've been studying in our systematic theology class these eight weeks come together here in Luke chapter 20 as Jesus interprets for us Psalm 110. For example, we have been studying Trinitarian theology. The idea that though God is one, 
he exists in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And none of those persons do violence to the authority or the attributes of the other two. That is what we can say truthfully about God the Father, we can say truthfully about God the Son and God the Spirit. But each of those members of the Trinity have various roles in creation and in redemption. And we see that very clearly in the 110th Psalm, even in the transmission of God's written word. Matthew says that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about the relationship of Yahweh, God the Father, and the one who's sitting at his right hand, Adonai, David's Lord and Master, the Messiah. And so Trinitarian theology is, is seen here. We also see the, the theology of, of revelation, how God has revealed who he is to us. And remember that we would know anything about God. We'd be in the dark had not he in his sovereignty given us the written word. We see the concept of inspiration. We see the concept of inerrancy, as I mentioned earlier. But unbelievably, we also see the doctrine of eschatology, the doctrine of last things. And we've not yet uh, arrived there in our systematic theology class. We'll be there in just a couple of weeks. Um, but eschatology is an area of theology that many people are certainly interested in. The book of Daniel, as I said, we'll be studying later. is a lot of eschatology in it. Um, but... The, the idea of eschatology that's revealed here in the Gospel of Luke is the concept of the kingdom of God. And as we've said many times from this pulpit, there's, there's a concept of the already and the not yet. In a sense, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's ruling and reigning in the hearts and lives of believers. But there's yet to come the time when he comes on a white war horse, the book of Revelation says, with a banner across his, says, his chest, declaring his title of ultimate king and ultimate authority, with a sword coming from his mouth, and he's coming to judge. And this is the not yet. That remains to happen in the future. And, and Jesus says that's going to happen. He says, remember, that all of his enemies are going to be placed under his feet. But, but there are a lot of other Christological implications we find in Luke chapter 20. Christology is the study of Christ, his nature and his work. And so let's just walk through some of them. One of the Christological implications of Luke 20 is that he indeed is the son of David, that he fulfills to perfection every single one of the messianic prophecies of the, of the Old Testament, including that he would be a descendant of King David. It tells us that he is the rightful Messiah, which means anointed one. By the way, in the Old Testament, uh, there were two groups of people who were anointed with oil when they were commissioned for their task. And those were kings and those were priests. And Jesus, of course, as we've seen, is the final and ultimate priest, the book of Hebrews says, one that does not have to keep doing his sacrifices over again. Not only is he the priest, he is the sacrifice. He is also the king. And only we can say of Jesus is the office of king and priest combined. Not even David held the title of priest. Only Jesus, as he says in Psalm 19, like Melchizedek. You remember Melchizedek was that priest of the Most High God who came out to Abraham after he had defeated his enemies 
And Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tithe. And he recognized this. And, and many of us believe that Melchizedek was a typical prophecy of the coming Lord Jesus Christ. And so we also see, speaking of Christology, that Jesus is the God man. He, he's not half God and half man. He's altogether God and he's altogether man. He's the, the God man. And, and we need to be very clear how we talk about the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. Through the centuries, there have been heretics on both sides. Some of them deny the full humanity of Jesus and some of them deny the full deity of Jesus. What we need to say that he's altogether God, altogether man. He's true God of true God. And that's why I say this is a test of authenticity. There are all sorts of individuals and sects and groups and cults in the world today, all wanting to be understood as either being friendly towards Christ and Christianity or either wanting to be accepted as orthodox in their Christianity. But those that reject that Jesus is God in the flesh cannot be considered brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, we'll start with the most obvious ones. The, the, the other large faith traditions in the world, Buddhists, which a, a large portion of the world's population self-identifies as Buddhist. They would have a favorable view of Jesus. They would say he was a, a good and wise teacher such as Buddha was, but they would deny that he is God. The Hindus, of which nearly a billion people in the world self-identify as Hindus, would say that, again, Jesus was a good man. Perhaps they would say he's a manifestation of God, much like Krishna, but they would deny that he is true God of true God. Uh, Muslims, again, one of the largest faith traditions in, in the world, have a favorable view of Jesus. They say he's a good man. They even say he's a good prophet just below Muhammad in their ranking system, but they deny out of hand that Jesus is God in the flesh. Well, you probably knew those things, but did you know also that Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of Jesus? Your Mormon friends deny the deity of Jesus and many, many other groups that we could name. And so we come back now to our original question that Jesus asked of those listening to him there in the temple grounds. And that is, what do you think about the Christ whose son is he? Because this is what it means in part to be a Christian is to accept the truth claims that Jesus made. I had a conversation with my middle daughter just a night or two ago, and we were talking about the truth claims of Jesus. And we were talking about how Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. And I said to her, if Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh and that were not true, that would be a lie. And she agreed with that. And I said, and we do not ascribe the term good to people who tell such outrageous lies. And she agreed with that. And so we were able to have this apologetic discussion at a 12 year old level that you can't have it both ways. You can't on one hand say that Jesus was a good man or even a good prophet. And yet we know he claimed to be God and he's a liar. How could he be good if he was telling such outrageous lies? And on the other hand, we know he did claim to be God, and if he did claim to be God, he's either telling the truth, or as, as Josh McDowell says, he's a lunatic, he's self-deluded, and Jesus clearly was sane, or he's who he claimed to be. And if he's who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, ultimate king 
of ultimate authority, then the only proper response is submission. And again, this is the point of this conversation that Jesus is having. He knows that some in that crowd are not far from the kingdom. They've heard his teaching and they recognize it as, as truth. And the Holy Spirit, I take it, is working on some in that crowd. And of course, in God's sovereignty, he that began a good work in you is going to complete it. And so I take it that some, even among those Sadducees and Pharisees, and even in the Sanhedrin, ultimately came to saving faith. We know that Joseph of Arimathea was part of that group, and he was the one that asked for Jesus' body and buried him in that uh, borrowed tomb. Now, that's interesting from a historical perspective, but let's bring it down to where we live today. What about you, dear friend? If I were to stop you on the street and say, what do you say? What about the Christ? Whose son is he? What would you say? Well, the Pharisee says, well, he, he's a man. He's a descendant uh, of, of David, but just a man. Well, Jesus is not impressed with that. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was a descendant of David. David had many descendants, some of them good and some of them very evil. What is essential if you're going to identify as a follower of Jesus Christ is that you accept all of his claims, including that he is very God of very God. And so I encourage you, if you've never done so before, to examine the scriptures, to see what they say. I had a conversation with our old friend Justin Peters about a week ago. And Justin is a full-time Christian apologist. He goes all over the world defending the truth claims of the Bible over against all kind of unbelief. And yet Justin's a very humble person and he brought it down right to the core of what Jesus taught. And here's the core of what Jesus taught. The core of what Jesus taught is this, that every human being who's ever born is a sinner. He's born into the world with a sin nature. He's a descendant of his first parent, Adam and Eve. And, and through their sinfulness and sin's curse, we are born with this sin curse upon us. And because he's a God of mercy, because he's long-suffering, and because he takes no joy in the death of the wicked, he intervened into human history at the time that was appointed and he lived a perfect, righteous, sinless life so that he could go to the cross as the substitute for sinners. That is, he could take the punishment for sin from a just God that we deserve. That's why Jesus died on the cross. It wasn't just to set a good example. He wasn't a victim or a martyr. Jesus was the sacrifice for sins, and he knew it. And then on the third day, he arose very much alive, victorious over death and the, and the curse of sin. And for all those who will submit to his authority, to all of those who will accept who he is and what he claims to be and place themselves under his kingship, then they will be united with Christ. The scripture says we are buried with Christ. We are crucified with Christ. We are raised with Christ to be seated in the heavenly places. And, and one day when Jesus comes to ultimately fulfill all of these prophecies of putting his enemies under his feet, we won't have to fear because we will be counted in the family of God. What about you, friend? 
Have you bowed your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in Christ alone? Have you despaired of any goodness that you perceive it within yourself? And have you called upon the name of the Lord? The scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, we have seen very clearly that Jesus fulfills to the very letter the prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. And though those Sadducees and Pharisees had been studying those scriptures all of their lives, they failed to interpret them properly. They failed to see that uh, their hero, David, called the coming Messiah, one of his descendants, his Lord, clearly stating that he's more than a man, he's God in the flesh. And so Father, I pray for some who are listening today who, who've never understood who Jesus really is, that you would open their spiritual eyes by your Holy Spirit, that they would see that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, very God of very God. And then Father, I pray you would grant faith and repentance that those folks would bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus over their lives, that they would submit every portion of their life to him. So Father, I thank you for many who are listening today who've been walking in that relationship with Jesus for many years. Help us to persevere to the end. Father, help us to rejoice in our salvation and to share it with everyone around us that we come in contact with. Lord, we give you praise for what you've taught us through your word today. And we rejoice in it through Jesus' name and for his sake I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.